This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. My guest today is uh, someone I've written about a little bit. I really have immense respect for him. A young broadcaster chronologically, but has really done some exceptional work. Uh, Adam Amin is a play-by-play commentator for ESPN. He joined the company in 2011 at age 24, so you can do the math, young guy. One of the youngest network, uh, or one of the network's youngest game callers. Adam, let me know how great I am at reading your ESPN PR bio here. It's, I, I'm, I'm cringing. I realize how hard I'm cringing and how much my eyes are rolling into the back of my head the more I hear this. I hope you realize that. Yeah, first of all, my God, like, imagine the person who has to put all these bios together. I mean, my ta- I mean that, that, that's a, what did you do in a past life? It might, be, it might be a ninth circle of hell type of job, in all honesty, if whoever has to put these together. I feel bad for the Anna DeGrons and the uh, Derek Volners of the world right now. My hope is that it's Josh Krulowitz if it's this bad. Anyway, uh, so Adam, uh, Adam Amin is a um, – so he calls a ton of stuff. Thursday Night College Football on ESPN, Women's Final Four, uh, college basketball, now the NBA, does MLB. Uh, he's called e- uh, the NFL on ESPN Radio for a number of years. Um, his, uh, you know, his resume at ESPN also includes like the College World Series, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. I know he's done wrestling, uh, volleyball. So primarily his, um, his work now, I think you see him when it comes to college, college football. Certainly listen to him on the NFL on ESPN. But he has done a ton of work for ESPN in a number of different sports. And we'll get into that a little bit in our conversation. I should know too, Adam, correct me if my... Uh, dates are off here, but over the last um, two years, you have done the Chicago Bears preseason uh, NFL mm-hmm. as well, correct? That's television, not radio? Yeah, the preseason TV broadcast, so you know, the local, uh, the, the teams always hire locally, and we get to do the games uh, on the local affiliates, so it's been, it's been great. Another good experience to have, and uh, a relatively, like, I, I hate calling it an easy gig, because nothing is easy, but it's like, it's just fun, you know, it's like a hometown, hometown gig, who wouldn't want to do that? Now, what a what a what a year for your accountant, Adam! Congratulations to uh, him or her uh, for all these different jobs. All right, Adam Amin <laughs> joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, Adam, here is by the way, that was one of the worst intros I've ever had, uh, but still probably a better intro <laughs> than I've had with this, your this buddy. Is, this is very exci- it's very exciting though, Richard, because all it took for me to jump on your podcast was Adnan Burke uh, badgering you at least seventeen times on Twitter, and then for me and Ravel to have like a thirty-five minute Twitter spat, and now all of a sudden here we, here we are together. This is what I've been waiting for. Actually, what I'm going to do is actually in post production, Adnan Verk is going to just he's going to read the intro. He's go, he's going to it's going to be him <laughs> introing you as opposed to me. We're going to bring him in as uh, perfect. Uh, yeah, as my sort of uh, body double here. All right, so here I mean, listen, Adam. There's a lot of uh, things I can talk to you about, but this is where I want to start um, because. You know, rare is it that a uh, um, sort of something happens on social media, particularly Twitter, 
which is like a, a burst of positivity and gets uh, and goes viral. But in this case, on Thursday, December 19th, which and tell me again if I have any of these facts wrong, which was your 33rd birthday. The next morning, you're on a flight heading back home, I assume to Chicago, after uh, taking a week off for a vacation. And you get this um, you get this idea as you're on a plane. And I will let you take over from there. What happened? I was, yeah, I was just kind of, you know, we had some time to burn. And I've done this in the past. I'm on a flight. I'm bored or, or, or trying to procrastinate if I'm, if I'm prepping for a game or something. And I'll jump on Twitter and say, you know, for the next 15, 20 minutes, I'll answer any questions about college football or, or uh, food takes or whatever. And I, and I should credit my friend Dan Rubenstein, uh, who does a great job on the solid verbal. He's a college football podcaster. I, uh, I, I ripped this idea off from him at various points. So, but just like, hey, here, here's 15 minutes. I need, I need something to get my brain occupied from something other than what we're reading about. Uh, so I figured, you know, let's do that once in a while. And this time, for whatever reason, I don't know what it was, you know, and, and I, I said maybe it was the combination of being relaxed and being reflective, uh, being a, another year older, I guess, uh, by time's definition, I figured, all right, let me let me kind of take some stock in in what's going on. And it was it was nice to be away from a week for from doing the job for a week. I didn't have my laptop with me. I, I felt a little bit more clear headed. And this kind of just struck me as, hey, let me, you know, give me give me 16 minutes and I'll say something nice about somebody that you like in in, in the media. You know, just mention somebody and I'm, if I have a story about them, I'll share it. Uh, if I don't know them, but I've seen their work, you know, I'll say something nice about them. And for 15, 16 minutes, that's what I did. And then I I enjoyed it. I I realized it felt good, you know, saying, saying these things and sharing these anecdotes and saying positive things about people that I happen to enjoy, or you happen to enjoy. It it felt good. And these responses, for whatever reason, it, they resonated with people and they kept pouring in and people wanted to know about uh, these these autonomous you know names and faces that not everybody gets a chance to know personally, and I'm lucky enough in a lot of senses to know a lot of these people personally and to appreciate the work just like all of, you know all these fans do. And I I just couldn't couldn't stop responding. I probably felt guilty at one point. I'm like, well, I don't want to I don't want somebody to say something uh, or mention somebody here and me say something nice about them, and somebody else gets mentioned and. I don't say anything. It makes it look like I don't like these people. And I'm sure I missed uh, a bunch of people, but uh, it, it turned into the rest of the flight, which turned into the cab ride back to my apartment, which turned into sitting on the couch uh, for the, for most of the afternoon and just kind of reflecting on all these nice and interesting and intelligent and talented people that I've been able to cross paths with. And I do feel that way about a lot of these people. I just don't always say it out loud. And I think most of us probably do. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us feel bitter and angry towards some of these people at various points too, which is part of the competition of the business. But at the end of the day, if I take back, uh, take stock and kind of sit back and reflect on all these people, I have a lot of respect for for the people that do this job. And I, I just kept responding and I, I just, it just felt better and better. And it felt positive and it felt good and all the nice things. So, uh, I think that's kind of what triggered it. How many reflections of, uh, colleagues did you ultimately get to did you did you ultimately offer some thoughts on more than 100 colleagues or what do you have any sense of what the final number was at the end i i don't i don't know what the what the final number was i'd like i think it was in the triple digits i i think so just based on how many tweets i ended up seeing you know there were so many responses i, I think there were 
I haven't looked at it in a, in a, in a little bit, but I'm sure it was something like 400 tweets in response to the original thread. So I'd like to think, you know, maybe a hundred of those I responded to, but it, it was a lot of people. I, I did feel like I ran the gamut <laughs> and there were people I didn't even know. Uh, there were a bunch of people that, well, I want to know about this person. I don't necessarily know that person. Uh, Jamie Erdahl. I don't know Jamie Erdahl, but somebody asked and I've watched a lot of her work. So, and she just popped, happened to pop into my head. So, you know, there are plenty of people that I don't even have a personal relationship with, uh, with, and I, I still felt strongly about their work and I have a lot of respect for what they do. You, uh, you know, when I, part of the reason I want to ask you why you think this went viral, but let, let's sort of be honest with the audience. I mean, you know, part of the reason, of course, is you're an ESPN broadcaster. It's the biggest name, biggest sports brand in the United States. And when someone at ESPN does something, many times it's news. But, you know, other ESPN people, other Fox people and CBS people have probably done similar stuff. Do you have any sense as to why this popped? Uh, because I happen to see it. Uh, I, I think some people on Twitter sort of gave me the heads up, but I saw it like on a Twitter moment, like somebody who's a curator at Twitter decided to basically um, tag it as, you know, the sports caster who provides joy, whatever it was. It was a good title. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, like they, 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 they clearly their algorithm picked up that like this was gaining some traction and let's sort of expose it to a bigger audience. And then obviously once it goes to Twitter moments, it's the kind of thing that, um, is going to expand expand beyond just your universe. Um, I don't know. You, yeah. The holidays. Why do you think it hit? Why do you what do you what do you think it was? I mean, I, maybe I, it might be. You know, I, I saw that. I, I saw the moment. That was pretty cool. And it said like perhaps in the spirit of the holidays or something like that. Which which maybe maybe people were looking for it. You know, maybe people were looking for a little bit of positivity because I'm, I'm sure I've been looking for it. Uh, and, and like you said, it, I have a lot of good friends and, and great colleagues at ESPN who have large platforms and followings and I happen to say nice things about them. So I'm sure they shared it. And uh, it was nice to see kind of the reciprocation of it at, at times as well. But uh, I'm sure everything you said, it's, it's a confluence of all those things. It's, it's people with large platforms. And I think, I, I think people kind of crave it. I think people were maybe craving it a little bit of positivity in a, in a cesspool that is Twitter, you know, this hellscape of an app that, seemingly brings us down with terrible news and racist, racist comments on a consistent basis. Maybe, uh, maybe people were just craving it a little bit. And I, and I know I was too, you know, like, you know, Richard, we've had conversations in the past and, you know, I, and let me also say, I, I appreciate what you've written about, uh, you know, my family and uh, the, the piece uh, you wrote uh, before the 2018 final four. Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate that. And I've expressed that to you and let me express that publicly. Uh, so I appreciated that, but in that last year and a half, you know, it's not, it, it hasn't been, I haven't felt the same in all honesty, you know, and it's, and you get hardened by a couple of things and life events and tumult and things of that nature. And I finally got to a point where I've, I've been feeling a little bit better and I think I wanted it. I wanted to kind of breed some positivity and I think other people probably feel the same way, you know, whether it's the time of year or not. Uh, it might maybe whether it's the climate of the country or not, I don't know, but I, I could certainly see people wanting to grasp onto something. And the fact that this happened to have a lot of people with decently large platforms uh, on this particular app, uh, may, maybe it's just a confluence of all those things. But I know I was craving it. Like I said, I, the, more, the more I did it, the more I responded, it just felt good. It felt better. I felt better. 
So I think that that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, uh, Twitter can be a hellscape. Let's just be honest uh, on yeah. many days or most days. And I do think there, I do think there is a craving many times for something uh, positive, particularly um, in a in a time of like massive polarization. And uh, I wish I could be a little less cynical about this, Adam, but I I think 2020 is going to be worse on that than and then 2019. That's that said, there are times on social media where I I do think like these kind of acts like they may not have a long lasting. Um, um, impact for people, but at the moment, I do think they provide something important. You know, they just provide like a reminder that like we're all sometimes in this together, and sometimes we forget that. Yeah, I I, I agree, and, I, and I'm with you, man. I, I I do think that you know that cynicism strikes me, and I wrote it. I wrote this in um, you know a little follow up thing with with our PR staff. I, I I at times while I was doing this, I kind of felt fraudulent. You know, I'm like. I don't always feel this way. I hope people realize that. And, and, and I don't want to, I also think it's okay to not feel a hundred percent positive a hundred percent of the time. And I know I don't, I'm sure people don't, nobody does for the most part. Uh, and, and as much as you try, it's not always going to feel that way. And I know that oftentimes we only put out into social media and into this landscape, what we believe is going to pre- be perceived as positive stuff. I've had plenty of moments on Twitter where I'm just like, I hate everything that's happening and I'm frustrated and I'm angry. And I've had, obviously I have these conversations more in private than I do in public, but I don't feel this way a hundred percent of the time. And I think the more I try to push myself to feel that way, there's this old psychology that if you just force yourself to smile, suddenly your demeanor will shift or at least gradually it will shift just because your body feels the necessity to match uh, or your mind feels a necessity to match what your body's doing. And, you know, sometimes you just need and need to force yourself to be positive at times or be happy or uh, be joyous or be friendly or whatever it may be. And sometimes your, your mind and your body just click and respond in that fashion. And I don't always feel that way, but it's nice for my own self or for my own, you know, just mental capacity to feel better. And it, like I said, the more I did this, the better I felt. And it, and it left me in a good mood for a good chunk of time. And it's not going to last. It's not always going to feel that way. I'm going to get frustrated again, or I'm going to be tired or angry or whatever again at some point. And I don't think I should feel bad about that. And nor should anybody feel bad about that. But I also think it's good to remind yourself, hey, the more you try to kind of push yourself in the direction of being positive or being happy or or trying to spread something uh, joyous as much as possible, as much as you possibly can, it really does affect your overall demeanor and overall mood, and it did help mine. So I, I hope that maybe that that resonates with some people. But I don't want people to think that I'm like I've got this aura of just positivity all the time because I sure as hell don't. I just don't, and nobody does. But the more you can do it, I think it, it makes everybody else around you feel a little bit better too. Adam, last week I um, I had a long conversation with Kevin Harlan about his um, his schedule and how he juggles his basketball work with his CBS television work. And then his was this uh, while he was one. calling a game and doing the interview with you as probably. well. Probably he was. That was yeah, that'd he probably, be, he probably, be just he probably as impressive w- as, as what he did. Uh, what he did the other day that was awesome. Yeah, well, he probably was calling a game while talking to me. But you are someone who has called a multitude of sports um, at a pretty still early stage of your broadcasting career, and I wonder for you if um, let me just sort of ask it an overall question. But how have you? Um, how have you tried to get comfortable 
with calling so many different sports that have different cadences, different rhythms, different rules, different partners, different everythings? I think I, I, I think it's because I didn't know any better when I first got hired, and why would I? You know, uh, I, I, I think we're used to seeing younger people do this job more and more and more over just the last decade alone. But I think when I got hired, there weren't a lot of us that were around my age that were doing this. You know, I think it was me, maybe Joe Davis. Uh, you know, Jason Benetti hadn't kind of come on the scene at that point. Mike Cousins hadn't really jumped on the scene at that point. Ryan Rucco was a little bit more local and was a little bit more geared on radio at that point. Uh, you know, so there weren't a lot of us doing it uh, on a national stage just yet. So for any of us doing it at that age, all we're trying to do is keep a job. You know, like I, when I got hired, I had a one year deal and I, I was just petrified that I was going to get let go. So when they call me and ask, Hey, do you want to do the NCAA wrestling championships? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't I want to do that? Yeah. Do you want to do, uh, you know, college softball and college baseball? Of course. Why wouldn't I want to do that? And I think you just get caught in the spot where you better do it. You better do these games. You better do all these sports. Otherwise, you know, we'll go find somebody else. And while that may or may not have been the case, it certainly felt that way. So it's kind of all I've known since I started doing this. And I think it just forces you into that, into that corner where you're like, if I don't learn, if it's fight, it's fight or flight, I guess, in a lot of ways, if I don't learn this stuff and I don't do a good job with it, I don't know if I'm going to have any, any employment, you know, a year from now or two years from now. So it kind of started from there. And then when all these other opportunities kept getting added, Hey, we're, you know, we're, you're going to get hired to do the NFL. You know, it was 2012 and sports USA radio hired me to do NFL games. Yeah, sure. Of course. And then they said, Hey, do you want to do major league baseball on the radio? Yeah, of course. I want to do that. Eventually, can you do the NBA? Of course I can do the NBA. Do you want to do, you know, this, do you want to do women's basketball, men's basketball? Do you want to jump into this sport and that sport? And I, I just didn't know any better. And I'm glad it kind of worked out this way. But I also think I'm, I'm a guy who needs reps. I'm a reps guy. I think there are some people who are just magically or naturally talented at this job, uh, in particular doing play-by-play. I am not one of those people. I, I do not believe I'm one of those people. I think I had to do this over and over and over and over again and become, become a robot and a machine in some, some capacity to have this ingrained so that when I do show up and do a game on radio, you know, like, like we did the other day, and I hadn't called a game on radio in a couple of weeks, I can jump back in and feel like I'm ready to go and I can get back into a rhythm relatively quickly. But I am not one of those people who is just naturally talented at this. I I look around and I see so many people, friends of mine, colleagues of mine. I just think you, you just have a natural feel for this. And I am one of those people who just doesn't. So a combination of those things out of necessity, out of, uh, out of fear. (laughs) I think that's how it kind of ended, ended up this way where I call all these different sports and multiple mediums and, and I think part of it is just I, I wanted to keep the job. Adam, do you feel most comfortable in one sport? And if so, what is that sport? I don't think I do. I honestly don't. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I don't know what my best sport is. I don't know what my best medium is. I really don't know. I, I think it, it shifts day to day. And, and like I said, it's because it's I don't think there's a natural talent for this, for, for me. Not, you know, not for other people. But for me, I just don't think I'm naturally good at this. So it just becomes getting into the mode of that game that day. And I know this might sound like a super weird answer or it sounds like inside baseball to anybody who, you know, may not have uh, have an understanding, a clear understanding of what it is that we do. But honestly, I think it's a day-to-day, game-to-game uh, thing. 
uh, were, were, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel prepared? Do you feel confident? Do you feel comfortable with the rhythms and machinations of the, th- of the sport and the medium that you're covering? Uh, I, I think if, if those things are, are kind of lined up, then, yeah, it's going to be a good game, and you're going to feel comfortable. You're going to feel like this is your sport. And that's kind of how I want to feel day to day. I want to feel like I own that game, but I think it, I think it fluctuates day to day and game to game. Roughly, um, how many events do you think you will work in 2020? Uh, I would probably guess like a, you know, a typical contract, you know, year. Um, I think it's like night. I'm, I mean, I'll give you a little inside baseball. I'm contracted to do 95 events uh, for ESPN. And then on top of that, you add a few games for, like you said, the bears. And I do some bulls fill in, uh, you know, in, in locally in Chicago. And uh, so, so usually it's around 100 to 110 events a year overall. And so can you give me, I know you have, you know, people, you, you have um, Michigan, Alabama on January 1st. I'll ask you about that because that's kind of a very cool college football assignment. But give like the listeners just like a little bit of a sense of what your January would be like. Uh, so yeah, we'll start, we'll start with that, obviously. And that, that will be, you know, that, that Michigan-Alabama game is my fourth game, I think, in eight days because I started last week with Christmas in Toronto. Like, like you mentioned, Richard, we did the Pinstripe Bowl this past Friday. I had an NFL game this past Sunday, and then the Citrus Bowl on New Year's Day. I'll fly back home to Chicago after the game on Wednesday on New Year's Day. I come back to Houston, where I'm at right now, uh, on January 3rd to do a college basketball game. I've got a UConn game the following Thursday. We go to New Orleans for the college football championship. Uh, I'll head back home after that on, on the 14th. I go to Oregon uh, for a Thursday, the 16th game. Uh, we've got a great women's game, top five matchup, top ten matchup, depending on the polls, Oregon and Stanford. I'll red-eye from Oregon back to Chicago and then take the first flight from Chicago to Philadelphia. On that Friday, I've got a Bulls game in Philadelphia against the 76ers. So, you know, between between doing all these all these yeah, there's a week there's the last week of January. I've got a Wednesday Bulls game in Indianapolis, a Thursday women's game in Notre Dame, a Friday Bulls game in Brooklyn, and a Saturday NBA game in Boston, and then a Monday women's game at UConn. So that's a five game and six day stretch when we're in the thick of basketball season. So that's kind of how sometimes these months they play out, and a lot of it is scheduling because. Hey, if I can't do a Bulls game for for the team, you know, if they ask, hey, would you mind filling in? If I can't do it, just it's logistically impossible. I'm not going to say yes to it because I don't want to put other people into a bad situation. But if I feel like I can get there, I can make it, I can logistically get there, and I'm not going to be dead by the time I get there, then I will make sure that I'm ready to go and prepared and, and ready to do a game for you. And I think that comes from the other people who do it like this, the Ian Eagles of the world, the Kevin Harlins of the world, two people I have great and immense respect for the Mike Tarico's of the world who were, you know, one of those Jack of all trades type of people at ESPN. And obviously he did it at such a high level, but he did so much. This is kind of how we're, we're bred to do this. You know, just, I don't know if we we're just idiots. We don't know any better. We're greedy. I have no idea, but this is kind of how these months end up playing out for me. That's an amazing schedule. Uh, that's, I appreciate you, uh, sharing that with the audience it gives people a sense of just uh just how busy you are all right let's take a break from our conversation for a second to talk about sleep number the new year is now upon us and which resolutions do you plan to conquer in 2020 i got a number of them but when it comes to sleep 
the one I want is to improve my sleep routine, my the amount of sleep I get, the quality of sleep I get. And so that is a big goal for me in 2020. Should be a goal basically for all of us as we get older. The importance of sleep, just you cannot emphasize that enough. So uh, let's say you want to go out and you want to stick to an improved sleep routine. You want to become more mindful, create a healthier lifestyle through diet, exercise, and of course, sleep. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, let's talk about the sleep number 360 degree smart bed. That helps everyone get the proven quality sleep that will change your life. And you use the Sleep IQ app to help create your routine. Now, what are the benefits of the sleep number 360 smart bed? Here's why it's the smartest choice for better sleep and the best bed for couples. Sleep number beds allow you to adjust to each side so you can get your ideal firmness, your comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. That is huge. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping and give you, gives you personalized insights for your best sleep. So basically, this bed is catered to you. Cannot recommend it enough. All right, it's time for you to discover proven quality sleep. And now, during the lowest prices of the season... A queen sleep number 360 degree C4 smart bed is only $1,299. That's a savings of $400. You can get this for only a limited time at a sleep number store or go to sleepnumber.com slash cadence, C-A-D-E-N-C-E, sleepnumber.com slash cadence. Everybody wants to get a great night of sleep, and now you can with sleep number. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One, something I'm uh, curious about, and you could sort of take this how uh, in whatever direction you want, because of your job, Adam, you have a lot of production meetings with coaches. Now, you know, obviously, I, I don't know how much you might get when you're doing the uh, the NFL for ESPN radio. I, my sense is you're not getting the same kind of production that Tessator, McFarlane, Nance Romo get. But when you do college football and you've done major college football, you obviously have sit downs with coaches and, and sometimes players. And now you've done a little bit of the NBA, and maybe you've gotten that as well. Can you just give me a sense, at least from your experience, um, what sport have you found um, coaches and players to be the more most forthcoming? And conversely, what sport have you found where the coaches and the players might be a little bit more reticent to the to the to the people who are broadcasting the game in terms of information, et cetera? Sure. Uh, that's a great question, actually, because I think the dynamic of this has a lot to do with uh, the pay grade. I think, I think when you deal with people who are professionals, uh, so NBA, Major League Baseball is part of this as well, uh, you know, Brad Stevens is going to be forthcoming about his rotation or who's hurt or 
what they want to do against the other team. And they have an understanding of, hey, these guys are going to be here. They see it on TV. We get, you know, these athletes get paid a lot of money. It's part of their job to deal with the media in, in, in as forthright of a fashion as they possibly can or how much they feel comfortable with, obviously. But, you know, I'm, I'm around Richard Jefferson doing some NBA games. I've been around P.J. Carlissimo and John Barry and uh, Doris Burke. And, you know, players know them, you know, whether they played or not. Whether, they're, you know, Doris is a veteran broadcaster, P.J. is a veteran coach, Richard just got out of the league. So they're going to be forthright with them, whether it's on the air or off the air. Uh, or for on air or for off off air or for on the record or off the record or just for background info or just talking during a shoot around or a layup line or whatever it may be. I think when you're a pro, you kind of you you kind of let go of some of that hesitance and and some of that apprehension because it's like this is my job and this is what these people get paid for. I'm assuming they're not idiots. I'm going to assume that they have a respect for me as a professional, so I'm okay with telling them certain things and assuming that they're going to have an idea about how to say them. When you're do, doing some of these meetings with college coaches, and understandably, I can, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I certainly would prefer they be forthright with us, but I also understand that they're in a weird situation with a bunch of kids. Like, these are not professional athletes. These are 18 to 23-year-old kids that they're in charge of. So how much they give us is going to, is going to fluctuate, and I understand that. College kids, especially if you're an 18- or 19-year-old freshman, who's playing in their first big game as a college football player, and we get a chance to sit down with you, if you haven't done a whole lot of that, then you're going to be relatively hesitant. This was the case I remember with Lamar Jackson the year that he won the Heisman Trophy. You know, the Louisville staff was hesitant to put him out on a, on a big stage. I think it was his sophomore year. Like, they don't want to put him in a spot where he's uncomfortable. This is a 19-, 20-year-old kid. I'm, I want to ask questions about his background, about his family, about his – his play about what he wants to do in the future. But if he's not comfortable answering those questions or he's not used to having to answer those questions just yet, he's not going to be as forthright about it. And that's okay. I can't put my, my, my expectations of a professional athlete onto a college kid the same way I do with somebody who gets paid and somebody who doesn't get paid. So I, I think that's kind of important to have that distinction, but I think that's mainly where the distinction lies. All right, Adam, understanding that this report, this was reported by John Orand of the Sports Business Daily, um, CBS has confirmed that they have pulled out a negotiation. ESPN has not confirmed anything. So I am, I, I'm, pre, I'm giving, I'm giving this preamble to sort of protect you. Yeah, I, I don't. This, I want people to know that this is not Adam Amin reporting this or anything else. This is me about to ask him a hypothetical, but it's a hypothetical that I think everybody knows is going to be the truth. John Oran of uh, of, S, of uh, Sports Business Daily reported that um, ESPN is going to ultimately land the uh, premium SEC football package. That's the right now the SEC on CBS, fifteen to seventeen games, including the conference championship, most watched college football series. Over the past decade and beyond, obviously, the, this is Alabama versus Auburn. You know, this is great, great uh, college football. Um, CBS will have it until I think 2023, and then ESPN takes over. So this is that's my this is why I want to get to with you, Adam. Let us make the assumption for now that this is correct, and that ESPN is going to get this. Can you give me a sense of how in demand you think this package would be for? broadcasters at your place because it strikes me that you know it's not every day where this uh, this kind of package comes to your employer and I would have to think 
there have to be, and maybe you'd be one of them, but I would have to think there would be so many play-by-play people and analyst people and sideline reporter people at your place who would really, really love the opportunity to work that kind of caliber college football. Of course. I mean, uh, I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd be one of several who would want to be in, in consideration for something like that. And like you said, every position would want to be in, in consideration for everybody in each position would want to be in consideration for something like that. But, you know, it's so tough because it is hypothetical right now and there is no confirmation. And I am certainly not smart enough or nor do I actually give a shit enough to, to care about how the machinations work. Like, all right, well, we're going to make this the ABC window at 3.30, and we're going to put an SEC game in there. Now Fowler and Herbie are going to call the primetime game because it's LSU-Alabama. And what is every, you know, how does everything else around it work? I'm not smart enough, and nor do I care enough, like at this point, to really dive all in on how, how it's going to be structured. But if you say, hey, would you want to do that 3.30 ABC SEC window? Yeah, of course. Who wouldn't want to do that? But uh, the, the only concern I have, and I'm not saying this, that this is like, as you properly preface, this is John Oren reporting. And as I should preface, this is just my own viewpoint of it, which has nothing to do with like how it actually is. Cause like I said, I don't know, nor do I really have an interest in knowing. I, I don't know if it suddenly becomes more diluted. Is it, is it, well, now we got to move, you know, this conference to this window, so we're only going to make this an ESPN window. Does the SEC completely dominate the ABC windows? Like, are we concerned about any type of any type of conference bias at this point? Which, by the way, love the conspiracy theorists uh, talking about Clemson and Ohio State this weekend, uh, which I'm sure I'm sure nobody's wanted to egg those people on, but uh, love the conspiracy theories. Keep them coming, guys. Uh, I, again, I, I just don't know enough to feel like. I have a great grasp of how the machinations work. And if this does move over, here's the, here's the other concern I have just based on the TV landscape. I will say that as a compliment to the, to CBS, they made the sec on CBS feel special. Like that three thirty window felt special. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the limitations that, uh, you know, that, that are put on, you know, our network because, you know, the sec has an exclusive window and things like that. Uh, Fowler and Herbie don't get to call broadcast games, you know, on ABC. Uh, so they have to slide over to ESPN a couple times a year if there's a big primetime SEC game. But I think my concern is, does it change the specialness? Does it change the uniqueness of what that window was? And does it just kind of get swallowed up into the whole ESPN ABC machine? Or is it going to feel like one of those special windows the way it did for so long on CBS? So is it going to have that same value? I'm not sure. And I hope it does. I hope it's just as special on ESPN or ABC or whatever the hell they decide to put it on. But I don't know enough to really feel confident in kind of analyzing that just yet. But I do think those are some things that a lot of people are going to be asking questions about. No, listen, those are all great questions. And those are all the questions that ultimately are going to have to be answered. So I appreciate you um, going there. It's going to be one of the more fascinating stories to watch. Can I just say before we get to the last are you, 55 million, the, the number shocked me, by the way. That it was just fifty-five million. Again, I'm I'm so unaware of these things. Fifty-five million for that package—that is amazing. That yeah, is one impressive of, stuff from the CBS. One of, one of the great uh, sports rights deals of the last, uh, easily of the last uh, twenty-five plus uh, years was uh, was CBS's uh, CBS's deal. But you know, again, it goes sort of part and parcel. It's like, well, great product, obviously, but how much also was S- was CBS part of 
raising um, raising the profile to get the dollars to where uh, to where they're ultimately going to be. But I, I must say, Adam, I, I, you, you're welcome to sort of expand on this. The, the, I mean, there's always just just loads of uh, of nonsense on Twitter. I mean, like I said, it is a daily hellscape that uh, it's amazing more people aren't jumping out of windows after reading that site. But the conspiracy theory against ESPN when it came to the uh, um, Ohio State-Clemson game was, I mean, that's one of the more fun, fantastic, insane uh, uh, circuses I've seen in a long time. Like, the, the idea... One, that ESPN is somehow involved in this is just in itself like, you know, Zapruderville nonsense. But uh, but let's sort of expand that a little bit. Like, if ESPN truly wanted to, like, fix a college football championship where they can get the, they can get the opponents that they would want, like, anyone who, who, like, has the ability to use Google can pretty much see that Ohio State and Alabama are far and away the most viewed television teams and have been for the last decade. Like, you would kill to have those teams in any kind of combination in the final. So, (laughs) the people who think that ESPN somehow is dictating Clemson to be in the national championship game because ESPN wants more publicity for for the ACC network, man, it is, that's just fantastic city to see. Oh, I, the the, re, the reach! I love the reach. Just the extension of the of the arms to try to reach and grasp this type of concept uh, from some of the fans out there. Listen, part of it, the part of the reason college football is as popular as it is because, and and again, this is just my opinion that has nothing nothing to do with ESPN. I don't love the structure of college football. I don't like the four team playoff, and that's okay if you disagree with me. I, I think certain years. It feels more. It feels better that it's just four teams. This year, it kind of felt appropriate because there are three really, really, really good teams, and everybody else is is just fairly good relative to those three teams. I think it's obvious: Clemson, Ohio State, LSU are the three best teams in college football, and then there's a gap. So this year, maybe fourteen playoff is perfect. But I'm, and maybe this is the city guy in me. This is the Chicago in me, uh, being a pro, growing up in a pro sports town, and kind of having an idea of structure. Like, when you win your division, you get into the playoffs, and then anything can happen, and you get ranked based on where, how you won your division. You know, here, the regionality of it is kind of going away. It's a more nationalized sport. I, I would be a proponent of, hey, if you're going to have power conferences, why don't you just put the champions of those conferences into a playoff, and then you got three wildcard teams, however you want to do it, throw a group of five team in there. That's fine. I, I would love a situation like that. And fans don't necessarily want to do that, and that's fine. I, again, I'm not here to argue – the rights or wrongs of it. I just would prefer a structure and system that has a little bit more consistency and a little bit more value to a lot more games. Yeah. You might diminish the value of an LSU Alabama game a little bit during the regular season, but you might exponentially raise the value of an LSU Vanderbilt game or, uh, or, or an, you know, Alabama Arkansas game because they have to win that game to make sure they're in position to make the SEC title game or whatever it may be. Like I would just prefer a structure that's a little bit more equitable and then some of these arguments just go out the window. But I, I just feel like that's something that, that hurts the sport a little bit when you don't have this regionality anymore. But part of the reason college football is as popular as it is is because these debates rage on for months, for months. I mean, weeks at a time, people are screaming at each other on Twitter, screaming at people who release the playoff rankings on a week-to-week basis come November. And that's what drives a lot of the interest in the sport. No, your team's not as good as my team. My team's better than this team and that team. But we beat that team, even though we lost. We only lost by two points 
to that team on the road without our starting quarterback for half. Like, this is how these debates get structured, and that lights a lot of the fire for this sport, and that keeps the interest going where the NFL, there's interest in it every single week because there is an already inherent value to each game. Hey, if I win this game, it's going towards my record in my own division. Oh, we have two games against our divisional opponent. We have to win those so we can make the playoffs. Like, following Dallas and Philly yesterday, while we're calling a Tennessee Titans game, while following the Pittsburgh-Baltimore game and the Oakland-Denver game and trying to kind of navigate through that, it makes Week 17 of the NFL really fun. That debate is is a little different in college football, but it drives it throughout the season. So I think that's part of the reason it is it is as popular as it is, and you have to get through the yelling and the screaming sometimes to realize, hey, that's why people love this sport, because they get to debate it in a way that they don't necessarily get to debate a professional sport that has a little bit more of a rigid structure. Yeah, it is. It truly is a great. Uh, you know, there's a reason why Feinbaum show is so popular. It's a great debate uh, sport, and the, uh, the 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 fans are probably among the more harder, in my opinion, harder graders when it comes to broadcasters. I certainly, uh, Vern Lundquist, Gary Danielson, Brad Nessler, they know all about that. Um, last one for me is you call the um, you call the women's final four. And that has gotten, as someone who's uh, covered women's basketball or covered women's basketball, I haven't really done much this year, but covered it for nearly two decades for SI. Um, your partnership with Rebecca Lobo and Karen Lawson in the booth, uh, rightfully so, deserved um, critical praise from people in the sport, people outside the sport that became, that's not going to happen anymore now that obviously Kara is now a coach with the Celtics, but you really, I think, immersed yourself uh, even for a short amount of time in the sport and people who cover sport and people who care about the sport like myself really appreciate that. Um, why do you think that worked, Adam? Why did you, why did that fit work? Because it, it, it certainly has for the women's final four. Team, friends, teammates. I think that uh, first and foremost, and, and let's not forget Holly Rowe in this, in this mix as well. Just, I, I think when you, when you have, like, I, I come here's here, uh, let me, let me, it's going to sound narcissistic maybe. So let me qualify it. I probably don't have to qualify it, but I want to, just so I don't sound like a complete asshole. I think, I think I'm a good teammate. I think I'm good at this job. I do. But I think I'm, first and foremost, I think I'm a good teammate. Rebecca Lobo's really good at her job, but first and foremost, she's a really good teammate. Carol Lawson is really good. Well, well, I mean, again, she's coaching now for the Celtics, but when she was doing this job, she was really good at this job. But I think first and foremost, she's a good teammate, and I would say the same thing about Holly Rowe. I think when you have people that are in on an event or project together and they all want to be really good teammates, I think it comes out very, very, very clearly that everybody gets to score. I think that's the best way I can say it. We're on, we were on a team, and I do feel the same way still now when it's me, Rebecca, and Holly. And, and certainly, we've, God, I'm, I miss the hell out of Kara. Uh, she, she became one of my close, close, close friends, and it was great to do it. I did a couple Celtics games in, in December, so I got to see her a couple times and catch up with her. But uh, I feel the same way about all, all three uh, of those people. We're all in on it together. We all want each other to get swings. We all want each other to score. And then I know when it's their part, I, I want to give that. I wanted to give them as much space as possible to do the thing that they're so good at, and I think they had enough respect for me that when the biggest moments came, they wanted to make sure that I had my opportunities to to score as well. And I think that showed in each of the two Final Fours that we got to do together. 
I think that showed off the air as well, where I think all of us just want to be good teammates to each other, and that goes for our production crew as well. I think that's that's what separates these. That's that's what I hope people realize. You know, like what's chemistry? It, chemistry is a buzzword sometimes. Like I don't know what it necessarily means, and I don't know how to define it, quantify it, or qualify it. But I do think it just means that people want to be good teammates and they want everybody on the team to score. And when you have teams like that, Breen, Van Gundy, Jackson, Burke during the NBA Finals, when you have uh, just groups of people, you know, whether it was the Sean McDonough, Jay Billis, Bill Raftery team that was so good on college basketball for so many years, uh, you know, it's it's hard to make three-person booths work. And I think they work when everybody wants to be a good teammate. So that's what I would say about about that partnership that we were lucky to have for a couple seasons. Yeah, and listen, I, I, you know, Holly Rowe uh, and Rebecca Lobo both have been on this podcast. I know both of them for uh, multiple decades. The one thing that I can say, having spent enough time around them, and certainly Kara prior to them, um, it really makes a difference in broadcasting, Adam, when the people you work with are, like, really good people. And I'm specifically saying that when it comes to those three. Like, you can... You know, you can find chemistry with someone you like a little bit, and maybe even find chemistry with someone you, you don't particularly love, but it just works on air. But when when it's three people who happen to be genuinely really decent people, and you get to work with them uh, in broadcasting, that is such a pleasure. And I feel like, at least as someone who's listened to you three, uh, and obviously Kara before, um, it comes through. Like, your friendship comes through. Like, it's not... It's an ext- it feels like the broadcast is an extension of however you guys are hanging out outside of uh, the arena. Yeah, it's not like we're going out and partying every week or, or something like that. It's just you come in with, with an appreciation for one another. And, and again, they, I guess to try to circle it back around, just to, just to clean, you know, put a bow on it, I guess. This is, this is kind of what the, the whole positivity thing is. Like, I feel good about these people. I feel good about the people I work with. I felt that way about my college football crew this year, and I felt that way in years past about people. Maybe, maybe I'm a naive idiot, but I have a tendency to fall in love with the people I work with just because you're together for, for so long and you're together on the road and you're trying to grind through uh, a lot of these events over the course of a long season. So I, I have a tendency to just fall in love with everybody I work with. And when that happens and everybody else reciprocates that, it's so easy to want them to, it, it's, it's easy to want them to do great things. It's, you know, whatever that means, again, it's a bullshit thing with, with, uh, you know, this, there's no, there's no, there's a lot of subjectivity in this business. Uh, there's pretty much only subjectivity in this business at this point. So what, what is good is different for me, for you, for everybody else. But I think when I'm in the trenches with these people, I, I can feel it when it's good. And I think the common thread among feeling good with all these people is that they're, they're good people. And I think you said it very aptly, Richard. Uh, last one, Adam, uh, be honest. How many episodes of Cinephile have you listened to in your various times uh, listening to podcasts? I have listened to every episode of Cinephile, and I'm I not mean, bullshitting honestly, you. Honestly, seriously, I, I was I was no on bullshit. it. I was on it for the first time. I was on it for the first time uh, last week talking to the Irishman. I was talking Marriage Story, but I have been a loyal, loyal listener of the fine podcast Cinephile, which is now on Cadence Thirteen. Uh, there's there's your plug. Uh, I'm a loyal listener uh, to my loyal friend at Edward. Wow. You talk about a love affair. That guy in Scorsese. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, named his, he named his kids. He named his kids with middle names after, after these actors. Pacino, De Niro, and Scorsese. Good Lord. I know. That's, 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 yeah. Well, at least I hope uh, 
you know, I hope Adnan at least gets a cameo in The Irishman too. Or so if they if, they, if, they, if they ever see that. <laughs> All right, let me give let me like straight, that sounds like a straight to Netflix if I've ever heard. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Adam, let me give the bio again. Uh, Adam Amin is an ESPN broadcaster who handles a variety of assignments. He just told you basically 95 assignments or something, events in 2020. Uh, Major college football, he has one of the big games on ESPN each week, uh, or ESPN's family of networks, I should say. Does the uh, NFL for ESPN radio. You do men's college basketball too, right? I think I'm right about that. Yeah, yeah, this is my games as well. Uh, He's got the women's Final Four, as we mentioned. He's done some NBA stuff, including uh, Raptor Celtics on Christmas Day. And uh, and probably a variety of other things uh, you will uh, and baseball as well, right? What's your what is your MLB schedule? You know, this past year was mostly mostly just kind of filling in a handful of times on TV, and then you you know uh, radio game every couple of weeks, and then uh, I was uh, part of the playoff series uh, filling in for uh, Berman when Berman had to go do uh, his NFL uh, stuff on a Sunday. I filled in on uh, the Cardinals Braves series on radio. Damn. Just Adam Amin is always I mean always available. Pataro's not going to be listening, but you know the leaf fit, the leaf fit, the leaf fittings of the world might be the the Connor shells of the world. This guy talk about a loyal loyalist here. Uh, let's give this guy a raise. All right, Adam, is there anything else that you need to say on this uh, on this lower rated podcast than uh, the one that Adnan and Mike Lombardi do? That so you'll be it'll be going to less <laughs> listeners. So make a count. Oh, so this is just an excuse for it to to throw a nice nice little body shot at, at the end of it. That's all good. Uh, yeah. What what are you what are you most excited about? I, I ask you this as a as a person who who, who covers the media. What right. are you most excited about story wise in twenty twenty? I'm, I'm just me sleeping more basically because I have the young kids. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work with the kids. I, I don't think I'm not excited the kids. about anything. Let me let me think about this. Uh, you're putting me on the spot. No, I listen. I'm a sports media nerd, so I I get interested and excited about a lot of things. But I, I think 2020 two two things. No one wants to hear my opinion. This, this, this is a guest driven podcast this week. But one, obviously, what happens with the NFL media rights whenever that um, starts cooking, and I think we'll obviously see some movement in that in the calendar year 2020, but because I'm, you know, I'm certainly very interested in politics and, and read a ton of stuff on, um, on politics and social issues. I, I think how sports outlets navigate the 2020 presidential election is particularly fascinating to me, including, and maybe specifically your place, given, uh, sure. many different reasons. I don't want you to go down that, that pike, but those I think honestly are the two that, that really interest me because I think they're, they're two very different topics, but they're two equally fascinating topics. So, uh, and I'm psyched for the women's final four because um, UConn is is I think better than people thought, and Oregon State is awesome, and Oregon obviously is going to be a top team. And you have Baylor. Um, I love when the I love when there's no definitive favorite for a title, and that's why I think it's a great year this year in women's college basketball. Yeah, I think uh, we all had a sense of Oregon being this this powerhouse that you know who might stop them, and then eight games in, here's Louisville uh, without Asia Durr stepping up and knocking them off uh, down to the Virgin Islands or St. Thomas, whatever it was. So I'm 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 pumped for it, man. I think this is going to be. We've been very lucky. I've done six women's Final Four games, and all of them have been like un- amazing games. I can only hope that it's going to be the same thing in 2020. Yeah, listen, you don't root, and I don't root, but I love the fact that Sabrina Anescu came back to win a title. Yeah. So I, w- I w- if nothing else, I'd like to see her get that shot. I'd like to see them in the title game. And then obviously whoever, um, whoever they face, but, uh, 
But there's a lot of good teams. And like you said, man, uh, I did not see that Louisville upset coming, but Jeff Waltz is always a good coach. So if you're a women's college basketball fan, it's going to be a fun year. All right, listen, Adam, you gave me more time than I expected, and I appreciate that. And uh, when Adnan uh, does the post uh, edits for this podcast, I will say hi for, <laughs> him, uh, for sure. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Adam Amin. All right, my thanks to Adam Amin for an excellent conversation. And uh, certainly check out his work across the ESPN platforms. Um, if you enjoy this kind of content, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Give us a five-star review. Leave us a rating. That's how this podcast continues. The guest before Adam Amin was uh, Jim Ross, the uh, the iconic uh, wrestling broadcaster. Now you can hear his work at AEW. And Joe Neeson, a longtime Sports Illustrated writer who has uh, been on with us a couple times to talk about what life is like after a company foolishly lets you go. Prior to that, Joe Buck of Fox Sports uh, for what I thought was a, uh, a really honest and, and in-depth conversation about Joe Buck's career. Just go through all the archives and you'll find something I think you like. Um, did want to mention a couple things I did for The Athletic that I think you guys may find really interesting. Our uh, Sports Broadcaster of the Year, I should say my Sports Broadcaster of the Year, sort of a made-up thing anyway, uh, was Kevin Harlan. And I did a long Q&A with him uh, where we talked a lot about his preparation and his schedule. He's just got a basically a crazy schedule from uh, given he does uh, the NBA for TNT uh, a lot of times on Thursdays. And then we'll do a Sunday game for CBS and then a Monday night football game for Westwood One. So I've been really in-depth on just how he preps for that, how he is able to be, um, at least in my judgment, such a high-quality broadcaster given multiple assignments in a week. So I think you'll find that long conversation interesting also on the athletic right now for me the 160 best things i read this year at least the things that were very impactful to me i think people who listen to this podcast know how much i love to read and so i'm hoping you can find uh, something there that impacts you some incredible journalism uh this year and then uh there's two other things that uh you may be interested in i spent the the chiefs patriots game embedding with the tony romo tracy wolfson uh, jim nance jim rickoff mike arnold's crew and uh, first time they let a reporter in there. And that's up on The Athletic for a 4,000-word-plus story where I try. I hope I did. I tried taking inside how that production group works and, uh, and why they put on such a good broadcast. And then um, as we head uh, out of 2019 into 2020, I asked 40 people, including Adam Amin, um, who are well-known in the sports media world, what advice would you give yourself at the... Uh, uh, at the end of 2009, if you could basically go back 10 years from now and uh, and give yourself some professional or personal advice. So a lot of December content for me on The Athletic right now. Check that out. I um, want to thank Patrick Antonetti, as always, for producing this podcast. I guess not as always, but generally speaking, he is the main producer of this podcast. Thank you to Chris Corcoran and John McDermott, Spencer Brown, Sean Cherry, at Cadence 13. Uh, appreciate those guys' support. Wish them uh, a great uh, 2020 heading forward. Cadence 13 obviously doing some great things in the podcast space. And thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, at the end of the day, this is a uh, niche podcast, but it's a niche podcast that has, uh, has been really um, supported incredibly well by viewers so or listeners, I should say. So uh, I, I appreciate that very much. All right, this is Richard Deitch. We will see you in 2020.
Thanks so much for listening to the Sports Media Podcast.